more and more people around the world are going to realize that a safety workforce just like police and the cops exist in our offline society there has to be a safety workforce in the online world too i hope that there is an upsurge in companies looking for these people who are trying to who are like warriors of the internet we need warriors of the mm-hmm. internet as our online and offline spaces intersect more Welcome or welcome back to the Elevated Podcast hosted by Lisa Battaglia. You are joining a community of elevated empaths who embrace their duality, honor their empathic superpowers, and live consistently from their authentic soul. The Elevated Podcast tackles conversations around empathy, energy work, sexual energy, manifestation, and social and cultural insights. Thank you for tuning in to the Elevated Podcast and taking the time to nourish your roots and elevate your soul. Let's get into it. Hello, Elevation Nation. Welcome or welcome back to the Elevated Podcast. If you're new here, my name is Lisa. And by listening to this podcast, you are joining a community of empathic and curious people who embrace their duality. In today's episode, I am speaking to tech policy expert Shubi Mather. Shubi is a recent graduate from the Master of Public Policy program at UC Berkeley, specializing in tech policy. In her previous work, she has worked on Indian election campaigns, analyzing data to quantify public opinion into electoral metrics. She has eight years of experience in policy design, strategic communications, stakeholder collaboration, and advocacy. I asked her today about her research on prioritizing certain digital trust and safety practices in tech, which she has presented at prestigious conferences like TrustCon in 2023, which was last week, and the Stanford Trust and Safety Conference. We spoke about international tech policy like the Digital Services Act in the EU and the Online Safety Act in Australia, the nature of trust and safety now with everything going on, and how tech policy affects the U.S.-Indian relationship and the upcoming Indian election in 2024. Our conversation was so fascinating. There was so much to learn here. I was so grateful for Shubi for coming on this podcast. I hope you all love it. Let's get straight into it. Welcome, Shubi. How's it going? Thank you, Lisa. It's going well. We were just talking before we came on here. And I was telling Shubi that I was up last night on threads because it was a, quite the interesting development in the tech space. <laughs> and I was curious if you had any thoughts on it. Did you know that this app was coming? Did you s- foresee this happening? And like, what are your thoughts on it? Personally, I haven't gotten a chance to look at the app. But since Meta announced it in December, 20, uh, in, the, in December of last year, I was very excited there's finally competition to uh, Twitter. And as we all know, Twitter doesn't enjoy the best public opinion uh, as of right now. So uh, big obstacle coming in for Twitter, I'd say. It's so interesting. And you're going to have to tell us all what you think about it once you get on, because <laughs> I'm really interested. I'm really interested f- about it from like a trust and safety and tech policy perspective once that you know, once it really gets built out and how they start to operate in that way. But first, let's give everybody a little bit of background who you are, because I found you through LinkedIn. You're such an amazing LinkedIn influencer. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd love to for you to tell everybody about your background, your work background, and also your education background. 
Wow, influencer uh, is a word I haven't really associated with myself, but I. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so um, I recently graduated from the Masters of Public Policy program at Berkeley. I went to the Goldman School of Public Policy, which has been ranked the number one policy school in the country and the world, I think, which is so strange to hear. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> so I, I, my specialization was in tech policy and uh, my master's thesis uh, was really helping uh, an industry partnership prioritize what trust and safety practices should all companies, irrespective of size, integrate into their systems to minimize the cost of non-compliance with legal and monetary risk. So interestingly, this research, people got interested in this research and I am presenting this research in upcoming TrustCon and Stanford Trust and Safety Conference. Which is so cool, which is so cool. And just from like the title of your research, I'm so interested in that because I just finished my master's in legal studies where I specialize in tech, law and policy. And we were saying before we started recording that there's probably some intersection between, especially if you were looking into how to reduce legal liability. So I want to get into all of your research and everything, but talk to me about first, like a little bit about your research while you were at Berkeley? And was this something that you were, you went in knowing that you wanted to study? Or was it something that kind of evolved over time? Yeah, so uh, it has a bit, bit of an interesting prelude. So prior to coming to grad school in the US, I used to work with political consulting in India. And in the Indian context, this concept of super PAC is very, very new. So there aren't very many super PACs, but I was fortunate enough to get a chance to work with India's foremost political strategist, who was instrumental in making Narendra Modi come to power in 2014. Now, I don't know in today's times whether it is a cool thing to say that I work with a guy who helped Modi become the prime minister, but but that's what happened. And it was there that I really learn the tricks of the trade on how do political entities use tech uh, tech platforms for their benefit, uh, use tech platforms to t- uh, reach out to their target audiences in a very specific targeted manner, and sometimes even circumvent the safety pr- uh, processes built into platforms in order to convey the message that they want. Now, in layman's language, this often can be known or is known as misinformation and disinformation. And I dealt with a lot of hate speech and misinformation and really, and that helped, that kind of encouraged me to explore the platform side of how do platforms reinforce safety mechanisms into their products. Because, you know, companies based out of Menlo Park or Silicon Valley have little to no idea how their products are being used in halfway across the world. And India, interestingly, has half a billion people on Meta products. So half a billion people and little public policy teams uh, working out of the, the specific regions. Most of the policies are being made here in the Silicon Valley. So I wanted to really uh, come to Silicon Valley to convey the impact that these products with not so robust 
safety features are having in democracies across the world, including India. And these platforms are being weaponized to convey certain types of information just because they, the safety policies or the product policies aren't culturally nuanced. And that's the perspective that I want to bring to tech policy being practiced here in the United States. So interesting. What was like super surprising in your research? Was there any like pivots or turns that you took as you were developing this presentation and this research? Yeah, I actually found a couple of interesting things. So initially, I wanted to put on a monetary figure, a dollar amount associated with, okay, if we try to integrate abuse pattern analysis in a particular product, how much will that cost? You know, and what will be the technical feasibility of implementing this in a product like Discord or Pinterest or, you know, or Snap? But it was, I found that it was very, very difficult, even after talking to multiple experts and relying on academic papers, to really figure out what was the dollar amount needed to hire somebody to integrate this product, you know, because there are a lot of technical complexities and these technical complexity would vary with product. And I wanted my research to be abstract in the way that companies uh, or user-generated platforms across the industry could use it as a basis. So it was very, very hard to figure out uh, implementation and technical feasibility and monetary costs. But what I ended up doing was quantifying regulatory risk and public perception risk on how how uh, not including certain safety features would impact a public perception, uh, the public perception of a particular company, you know? Will people sue the company or are civil society organizations talking about it? Or in response to a particular feature, have regulators around the world, you know, made a law or proposed a regulation? So that kind of stuff. That makes a lot of sense because I think what I've been seeing And kind of the jobs that I've been looking for are along the lines of like trust and safety communications. I'm seeing that more companies are hiring for the intersection of how do we communicate about how we are dealing with trust and safety issues. And so I think your your take on looking at public perception is really pertinent to the conversations that you're having, because that is where a big a large amount of cost is going to come because look what's happened. We were just talking about the public perception of Twitter and how that kind of shaped a new app kind of coming in and taking, you know, its place. Did you find that there were certain topics, like whether it be child safety or um, adult nudity, sexual policy, or misinformation, disinformation. Did you find that different topics had different outcomes for either public perception or monetary costs? Yeah. So interestingly, I didn't look at policies from specific angle of, uh, uh, you know, uh, child sexual abuse or misinformation or hate speech. I looked at policies from a rather abstract angle that can be generalized across all platforms. So for example, practices like abuse pattern analysis or risk assessment Mm -hmm. or complaint intakes or transparency reports or like research academic collaboration. And so within these generic aspects, there there was inbuilt different kinds of uh, hate speech policies or, you know, 
any product policies could be generalized on a high level into these practices. And, you know, there's right. this uh, industry consortium called the Digital Trust and Safety Partnership, which has extensive framework of 35 best practices, which are agreed by the industry. In, and their partners have companies like LinkedIn, Google, uh, Discord, Pinterest into uh, in their platform. So, so there are a set of industry recognized best practices in the trust and safety domain. That was another question I had for you. Do you find that there's um, a benefit to almost having like, quote unquote, an international internet law or like what you said, like a trust and safety partnership association where they are kind of agreeing on these best practices? Do you feel like there's a benefit to having kind of a one standardized way of regulating tech companies? So let me answer your question in two ways. My first, the first part would definitely be that there is increased regulatory proactiveness in addressing the divergence between public, what the public actually feels and how regulators are thinking ahead and really formulating laws to protect, uh, to make the internet safer. So for example, there's this area of user control, transparency reports, Research academic support and complaint intakes where there are, in my research, I found that there are more regulators, more regulations around the world uh, working on these issues vis-a-vis number of lawsuits uh, that there are or number of civil society organizations working in this space. So this indicates a regulatory proactiveness in, in these domains. And so let me talk a bit about how how user controls and transparency reports are uh, really sort of emphasized in regulations. So like if we talk about intermediary guidelines and digital media ethics code, which was which is India's latest IT act, they demand that significant social media intermediaries have to publish a compliance report every month mentioning details of complaints received, action taken, number of uh, wow. information and communication links removed and you know they have to if they're being asked by a law agency law enforcement they have to provide information to verify or prevent or detect in less than 24 in less than 72 hours and this oh my god yeah there are tight timelines and you know regulators are really tightening the cap around it mm. and even like in the digital uh, services act in the eu mm-hmm. there is the, you have to be transparent about your recommender system including algorithms used as you know that eu is notoriously fining a lot of these uh, american tech companies because there is a lack mm. of transparency in it if you talk about right. the most recent online safety act in australia there are uh, the e-safety has uh, has the power to require online service providers to report on how they are meeting all basic online safety expectations, you know, and they have huge repercussions if they don't do it. So in a sense right. that regu- regulators are becoming increasingly proactive on some of these measures. And, uh, you know, in especially if you talk about the Digital Services Act in the EU, they have to, platforms have to data share with authorities and researchers in order to develop an understanding of evolving risk. Otherwise, the risk fines up to 6% of the global turnovers and even suspension of their services. So I would say wow. that regulators are taking it pretty seriously. 
do you think that more regulation is necessarily better when it comes to, especially what you're saying, like 72 hours for law enforcement response can is not a lot of time yeah. at the high volumes that they have. It's it's a tough question to answer. Our regulations, what what do you what do we mean by overregulating a space? Now, yeah, uh, some would argue that the U.S. Congresses uh, and the entire United States mission of banning TikTok and you know controlling TikTok and establishing data security is it too much just because TikTok is a Chinese-owned enterprise, which is headquartered, in, which is not even headquartered in China now, it's headquartered in Singapore? Is the government trying to read too much into its roots? But on the other hand, we have the we have the EU or countries like India or Australia trying to regulate American companies. And here in the Western world, we can totally ask, oh, this is over-regulation. You know, these fines are too much. In the online safety bill in the UK, which has not yet become a law, but is very possible that it will become a law very soon. And it has penalties up to 10% of the global revenues of the company if you don't comply with it. Wow. So like some could argue that this is over-regulation and, you know, the world is a is a free market and we don't need governments regulating our space. But we really have to ask the question, do we consider regulation as bad only when it affects American capital capitalist interest? Or do we have a common standard for everywhere in the world? That's a great point. Just going back to the Digital Services Act, if any if anyone listening doesn't kind of know what that is, it's a, it's this new regulation that the EU just implemented. Correct me if any of this is wrong, but it's intended to regulate these tech platforms in kind of trust and safety practices for the most part. So just like high level, just tell us a little bit about what that act is and what it means at a high level for these companies. Yes, the basic objective of the DSA is to regulate internet platforms in order to keep their practices more transparent, in order to ensure accountability, but also set up grievance redressal mechanisms. Whether companies have a grievance redressal mechanism, it has an aspect of trusted flaggers. If you report a particular content, if a user reports a particular content, for example, if you see a picture that you don't want to see on the internet, on on Facebook or Twitter or uh, uh, Snapchat, how do you report it? You know, are there mechanisms to report it? And how do you deal with complaints? So I think the Digital Services Act is kind of a comprehensive package on regulating the user platform space. But what I find most interesting is a lot of these companies and a lot of our conversation floats around the Digital Services Act, uh, while at the same time I see that there are certain regulations around the world which are not exactly coming in the limelight but have strict penalties for non-compliance. The one prime mm. example is the Indian Intermediary Guidelines. Now, EU has significantly lower population of internet users than in India, you know. But I find a lot of uh, tech policy conversations and people are scared of the DSA, you know, as they should be. But like people are not paying adequate attention to what's happening in India or what's happening in the neighboring Asian countries, which have a significant portion of the users of these platforms. 
and their regulations are really, really strict too. Why do you think that is? Why don't you think that we're giving more attention to those things? Well, I would suspect that that Western regulations are given a higher pedestal and a higher acceptance level uh, vis-a-vis Asian or African regulations. But that would just be a voice of a person who just came out of colonial hangovers. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I, I know that you were talking a little bit about, there. Were, I was reading a little bit from Katie Harboth's newsletter about why we should be reporting more on this Indian election in 2024 and why it matters in tech policy. So can you give us just a brief overview? I do want to go back to your suggestions for best practices in your research. But just to start, I, I want to just give a brief overview of what's going on in India and why this is kind of important to the US-India relationship too. Absolutely. So I, I'm not sure if you know, but I collaborated with Katie on that newsletter and really mm-hmm. figured out why. So uh, Prime Minister Modi recently visited the United States. And this was a monumental state visit, uh, not only because he enjoys humongous popularity, both here in the US and in India, uh, but also because India is slowly heading towards uh, uh, silicon semiconductor manufacturing. And U.S. Mm. also has significant, in fact, millions of billions of dollars invested into semiconductor manufacturing in Texas. You know, the U.S. really wants to establish robust supply chains in order to really avoid what happened in our pandemic during our pandemic. You know, when supply chains were uh, cut off from China. So, in a bid to establish resilient uh, supply chain, I think. This was definitely one order of concentration. But second order, I would assume, is the U.S. is particularly interested in having a reliable democratic partner in countering the Chinese influence in mm-hmm. Asia Pacific. And I think India is is a reliable partner in that case, more so because India is also facing a lot of Chinese intrusions on its northeastern border and in the area of Kashmir. So I, I think, yeah, enemy... What do you say that saying? Uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend. A lot of that too. So interesting. And how will it kind of affect tech policy well, going into that election? Yeah, definitely. I think India and the US has a lot of uh, technological exchange. As you see, most of the CEOs of enterprises, of big companies in the Silicon Valley are Indians. So a lot of uh, and a humongous population of India's population is our engineers, just like myself. <laughs> so there is a lot of engineering potential uh, that can be explored in making technology stronger in both of our partner countries. But mm. the way in which the Indian elections are going to impact tech policy, are, I think, are humongous. Both India and the U.S. have elections in 2024. And with both Modi and Biden uh, are kind of in a similar age bracket. And for both of them, these elections will be kind of their last go at, you know, making an impactful political exit or maintaining their political power. Prime Minister Modi in India has has a lot of digital armies, so to say, in order to really propagate the kind of messaging that he wants to come across. Whatever that messaging uh, is, like, I don't want to comment on the ethic, uh, ethicality of that. 
but definitely he has been very technologically savvy and i think we are going to continue to see it but i think what's more worrying for me is that with the layoff of all the integrity workers from twitter and a massive number of integrity workers from meta and these platforms i think we are going to definitely see a rise in um uh, uh, misinformation and you know just dis- uh, dishonest conduct uh, on social media because now social media is so embedded in our day to day life even in rural areas you see people talking through whatsapp and spreading all kind people have died due to misinformation on social media you know there have been riots and murders so i i mean companies should be really mindful of uh, what of of uh, how laying off integrity workers will really impact democracy and elections that was going to be a, another point i wanted to bring up with you is just the the landscape of tech right now especially when it comes to hiring because it seems like a lot of hiring is very slow and they've laid off so many people and like i mean you answered this that like d- does that affect how we actually are interacting with the apps on a day to day and do you think there will do you think it's like a purely economical decision do you think it'll come back and they'll start rehiring these experts again or do you think that they'll just try to live without those hiring so many people yeah i think musk has started a very dangerous trend on demonstrating that platforms can work without these people thinking about the welfare of users in a sense on a personal level i do hope that his experiment fails because once there are a lot of talented people who have acquired this knowledge of building up the integrity domain in an online sphere which is which was nowhere to be found earlier this was not this domain did not exist 10 years ago 15 years ago but now it's a full fledged discipline and at twitter things are really bad you know every day there is some crash on the site but what has happened is uh, zuckerberg has also taken inspiration from <laughs> musk it seems and so that's why meta also had laid off has laid off uh, thousands of integrity workers so it's it's a right. worrying trend but on a personal level i do feel uh, or i do hope that that these companies come come to their right state of mind pretty soon and hire all these amazing people who are out there in the workforce back and this practice of creating online safe spaces continues and i also think uh, on uh, that governments should now start hiring these trust and safety professionals just because they have the know-how of how platforms work so instead of bringing about ridiculous policies that won't are, that are not really enforceable i think legislators and uh, senators and congress people should uh, and regulators around the world should really hire these people who know what goes into creating a safe platform it's such a valuable like wealth of knowledge that these people have and i think you're absolutely right i i'm i agree with you i hope that that doesn't become a trend that it's economical decision and they'll come back when the econo- economy is nice and booming again but yeah i think it's i think it's so interesting so i want to get back to your research and Lisa, what your suggestion let me let me yes. on that note a funny story comes to mind a real life incident that happened with me 
So, <laughs> so I went to this networking event a couple of months ago, and this was a networking event of integrity professionals. And there were almost like 25 people there, uh, 25, 30 people there in the San Francisco rooftop bar. And all of them uh, had like, some of them had PhDs, and most of them had around 10 to 12 years of work ex in these major corporations. Uh, but the most interesting factor was all of them had been laid off. Can you believe going to a networking event where everybody had been laid off and everybody was super well-educated, mostly from Ivy League schools and had really established a practitioner base, had really kind of established an industry of their own, had done monumental work in protecting the way the world works and keeping the internet safe, but all of them were laid off. I, I mean, that somewhat makes me feel better for the struggles I'm going through right now looking for work. But it, I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. And and I thought to myself at that time that, oh, my God, these the coolest people I met here do not have a job. How can I even imagine getting a job myself? <laughs> right. I wonder how TrustCon is going to be mm-hmm. with Everything that's going on right now, if anyone who's listening doesn't know, TrustCon's like the big trust and safety convention that the TSPA puts on. So what are your predictions? How do you think it's going to look from a morale standpoint and just overall? I do hope that TrustCon provides uh, humongous networking opportunities for folks like ourselves. But what I do know with certainty that there will be Beautiful knowledge exchanges happening between uh, cross-pollination of different industries, people who work in trust and safety, uh, in academics, or in in the industry, or even from the vendor side. You know, it was very interesting to know that a lot of the sponsors of TrustCon are basically uh, trust and safety vendors, which you don't really see in in the mainstream media, but but now you do, I guess. And, and so and um, the TSPA team has been uh, so organized with putting all this together. They've also organized these networking events uh, after the conference, which I do hope to see you in. Uh, <laughs> and I do hope yeah. you make it. I, I think it's going to be a fun, fun conference. That's, I mean, that's great. I think it will be a really great way to kind of bring all these people together yeah. because, the environment has felt um, maybe uh, challenging is not the best word, but like that's the best word I can come up with right now. But just like the space, you know, there's I think we could kind of come together and like it will be, like you said, a beautiful exchange of ideas and conversations and inspiration. So I love what you said about that. Okay, so I want to get back to your research and what your suggestions were for these companies um, and how to implement them. Yeah, absolutely. So through my research, uh, I uh, I came across five best practices that impose the highest cost of non-compliance. Now, these best practices are abuse pattern analysis, companies have to have to uh, integrate abuse pattern analysis into their platforms. There are more than 10 regulations around the world which regulate that if you're not integrating these uh, abuse pattern analysis into your product, you are going to be in great, great trouble. 
So I think every company should do it. Then secondly is transparency reports. Uh, increasingly, a lot of regulators from Turkey to India to EU to uh, California are asking uh, to submit uh, a transparency report. So I think that is becoming a clear area for regulators to uh, add. Uh, even Singapore and Australia now, they're like the newest players in reg- uh, trying to regulate uh, tech. And then I think the practice of advanced detection, you know, you have to identify areas where uh, advanced detection, it may be in any field, it may be in child sexual abuse, or it may be in removing unlawful speech or unethical speech, uh, like defamation, inciting violence and stuff. Companies have to take action against that. And then uh, the fourth best practice has to be complaint intake, you know how companies log incoming complaints, decisions, and enforcement actions in accordance with data policies. So uh, not only EU, uh, not only the Digital Services Act in the EU, but also NetGD in DG in Germany and Online Safety Act in Australia and Interdairy Guidelines in India have stringent guidelines on whether you establish a grievance redressal mechanism or you know, uh, what kind of do you have easy to follow ways for people to for people to log complaints uh, against your platforms? And how are these complaints handled? What is the timeline of the complaint handling? You know, Lisa, you will be surprised to know that in the next D, uh, next DG in Germany, platforms have to block access to unlawful information within 24 hours of receiving a complaint. You know. 24 hours. That is the stringent timeline. And the consequence of not doing it is also harsh. Really, really hard. That's insane to me. I mean, the volumes and the what we were just saying with how everybody is laying, like most com- tech companies are laying off so many people to be able to respond to those complaints. I mean, 24 hours is it's all, nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, but that is what regulators now uh, these days want because, you know, whatever happens in the online space has physical consequences in the offline sphere, you know? People, there right. are violent, there's violence and riots and people do all sorts of crazy stuff. So, mm-hmm. but the last... Uh, but one of the last practices that companies that my research indicates that companies should definitely integrate is research academic support. You know, not only the Digital Services Act in the EU, but also there was, there's this upcoming bill in the US called the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. It kind of mandates media firms to reveal internal data in response to research queries approved from the National Science Foundation. And, you know, it has uh, penalties from the FTC up to $10,000 for each violation and loss of immunity granted by Section 230. So very, very interesting revelations in in this research. But uh, any like companies, so smaller companies who do not have the budget of the Googles and the betas of the world, they should definitely look forward to including at least abuse pattern analysis, transparency reports, advanced detection, complaint intakes, and research academic support into their product. Are most big companies doing what you suggest right now from a high level? Yeah, I think I think they are. But uh, Twitter recently switched off their uh, academic API research so that people don't data slave off uh, Twitter. 
I think uh, uh, Reddit also tried to do that because a lot of these AI companies were just scraping off data from Reddit in order to train their AI models. And Reddit wants to be mm-hmm. a profitable company too, you know, and they want to generate revenue. They don't want to give their data for free. So a lot of these companies right. are trying to uh, shut off APIs uh, to researchers and a- uh, academics. So I think that's a dangerous phenomena again spearheaded by dear old Musk. Did you find that AI affects any of the stuff that you were looking into? Definitely. I think every company has a lot of AI uh, embedded in their systems. That's how companies uh, are able to generate transparency reports of the billions of uh, uh, gigabytes of data that they have on their uh, on their servers. That's how they are uh, able to uh, detect if there are uh, through keywords or content classification models that there is, uh, for example, child sexual abuse happening, or you know, there is sharing of uh, deep fake pornography because you know image hashes and all. So I think AI is definitely embedded into all of our systems. But what has really boomed after ChatGPT coming into the public view? is how we as the general public interact with it. You know, it's become very user-friendly now. Even normal people can use it with no knowledge mm-hmm. of how do large language models work. I think that has been the basic difference. Companies have been using it for a right. very long time. Um, so much of this technology has become easily accessible and you don't need any like training on how to code to get these things to work. And I think that will make a huge shift in how we interact with everything. Do you think that like, you kind of touched on it earlier, I just want to probe in on it a little bit more. Let's I did a little bit of research when I was at school about like crisis emergency protocols in in these tech platforms and what they do when there's a, a crisis emergency. And so do you find that especially when they're asking for like a 24-hour turnaround, when crisis hits or like when there's an election, when there's just a higher volume of tickets, how does that kind of affect what your best practices suggest? Well, if there is a crisis, then we all can rest assured that all the actions taken in by companies will be scrutinized in excruciating details. So I think mm-hmm. crisis is the one time that companies should be very, very cognizant of what kind of, they have to do everything by the book, you know, and the, the, uh, really the buck stops with them on how do they try to contain it, whether by blocking tweets or by blocking, uh, you know, access to information in certain geographies, uh, the buck really has to stop with them. And if, and uh, Definitely things will be investigated if if they're not able to control in the physical world or the impact of what has happened on their platform. And law enforcement will definitely not only scrutinize it, but may also you know, penalize them for their actions. If you do not have integrity workers uh, on board, it's going to be a tough time. Yeah. yeah, and it makes your your suggestions that much more pertinent because you are saying if you have these things in place, it'll be not as large mountain to climb when something like a crisis emergency hits. So I think your suggestions are really insightful, and I think your research sounds so fascinating. 
Was there anything else from your research that you found interesting that you hadn't mentioned yet or that took you by surprise or um, maybe something that you left out that you were thinking like, oh, maybe I should mention that too? Yeah, I, so this, my research has to be, it's basically designing a model, right? That's what I did. I scenario planned and designed a model in order to uh, really come up with a metric that includes, uh, that quantifies both regulatory risk and public perception. But in order to be, uh, in order for it to be really uh, effective, it has to be constantly updated. And companies have not only have the moral and ethical responsibility to really comply with all these regulations, but also they have to be cognizant of how the public views them because it is going to impact their revenues, their business model, and their share prices. So I think companies should take cognizance of it and really integrate it uh, in a scalable manner. And I'm sure they have teams of people who already do it for them. But if they don't, then um, yeah, I'm happy to be contacted for consulting services. Let me shameless plugging in. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I have no doubt that you would be so useful to any company that's just looking for a little bit of help in any of this. I, I you sound so knowledgeable and so eloquent in the way that you present it. So I am really grateful for you for for coming on here and talking about this because there's a lot of discussion about, especially because of what's going on with Twitter and Elon Musk, like there's so much more attention on trust and safety, law enforcement response, all of that, all of those issues than there was five years ago when I started working in this space. So there's a lot more like public attention on it. And I think that it's important for more of us to be talking about the intricacies of it and what's actually going on on the inside and what the actual best practices are. What do you think I, this is just coming to mind about like, when I was going into my master's program a year ago, there were kind of a f- very few programs that taught this about this work, about tech policy in general. Do you think that there's going to be a shift? Do you, th- think, do you think there's going to be more like academic, like higher education surrounding these topics? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, even when I was applying, uh, there weren't very many programs uh, across the world who were teaching it. And even today, there are only, I can count only four or five schools um, that, that have specialized courses in tech policy. So I think this is right. an emerging academic field. And I see, uh, uh, you know, collaborations from vendors. There is wow. Alex Samos uh, at Stanford, uh, at the Stanford Internet Observatory, who teaches courses on trust and safety. At Berkeley, I one of the one of the key classes that shaped my perspective on tech policy was this class offered by the former dean of the School of Information. Uh, she's called uh, Professor Anoli Saxanian. And she had this wonderful course running called The Politics of Information. And this course, mm-hmm. the course name is rather like ambiguous, mysterious. Then the course talks about content moderation, regulatory approaches, how do intermediaries function. And that was actually my academic window into how this world actually works, who are the people who have shaped this academic discipline now. 
and you know it's mm-hmm. very interesting to me that this is probably one field where practitioners are shaping academia usually it's the other way mm-hmm. around so that that's pretty mm-hmm. pretty interesting so interesting i think it's just going to be a really emerging space in the next couple of years yeah and and lisa we also have to be i'm just curious to know that a lot of these private universities for example uh, a lot of these uh, harvard kennedy school centers in columbia and stanford these schools have come from resources and of course they have the resources to uh, hire practitioners into their field and as you as you may have also noticed a lot of these industry practitioners who got laid off took up academic positions you know their fellows yeah. in some of the other centers in the most renowned universities on the planet but the cool thing i noticed was only one public school that is the university of california at berkeley had courses on this practice because public universities are not really well funded uh, even though however well renowned they might be so it's interesting that they had the goldman school in fact uh, has a initial tech fellowship program in which they only take industry practitioners and i was very surprised to know that twitter's former head of trust and safety yol roth uh, is now a tech fellow at the goldman school oh interesting yeah i mean i've been seeing so like like you said a lot more fellowships kind of come up and that's so interesting that they want practitioners in this space and that just intersection of the industry and higher education i think it's going to be really fascinating what do you foresee being the major issues within tech policy in the next year? Hmm. What do you think people are going to start to focus on or pay attention to? Or what do you think is going to be like the most important thing happening? I think we would be remiss to not talk about generative AI and its regulation. So definitely regulators will be uh, looking at uh, industry practitioners and academics to help them uh, demystify uh, how do they regulate uh, generative AI. As you know, Sam Altman has been on a tour of the world, you know, convincing mm-hmm. leaders across the world that AI should be regulated. Of course, he thinks that way. I mean, he has already made his mark with uh, GPT-4 and ChatGPT. So... Uh, regulation of generative ai is one thing that's definitely going to happen but also more and more people around the world are going to realize that a safety workforce just like police and the cops exist in our offline society there has to be a safety workforce in the online world too and these people yeah. are super educated culturally nuanced some of them have degrees in anthropology and economics and you know public policy so there will be an upsurge or at least i hope that there is an upsurge in companies looking for these people who are trying to who are like warriors of the internet we need warriors of the mm-hmm. internet as our online and offline spaces intersect more content moderation has always been in the picture and will always be given how politically divisive today's society has become where can the people connect with you if they want to learn more? Where can they find you on the internet? How should they follow what you're doing next? Yeah, the best place to connect with me is through uh, LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Shubhi Mathur, S-H-U-B-H-I-M-H-K-U-R. You can find me on LinkedIn. Sounds great. I'll have all of the links and the information below. 
I am so grateful for you for coming on and imparting your wisdom on here. I mean, I, I learned so much and there's so much coming up in the space. And I think that there was so much for us to talk about. I'm sure in a couple months, there will be a lot more for us to talk about. So I'd love to have you back at some point and we can divulge even more in this space. But thank you so much for coming on here and, you know, sharing with us your research. so nice speaking with you, Lisa. And, you know, um, uh, would love to hear audience feedback and comments. Yeah, you have to connect me with your audience. Yes, absolutely. I will let you know what the people say and let us know if if you have any feedback or thoughts or questions for us. We'd love to connect with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lisa. If you want to connect with Shuby, her information will be below. Go follow her on LinkedIn. She has great LinkedIn posts. And if you'd like to work with me, all of my links will be in the description below as well. If you want to stay connected in between podcast episodes, go follow me at The Elevated Empath on TikTok, Instagrams, threads, YouTube, all the places. I hope you feel so elevated and I will see you next time.